this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Lightning Bolt Theater of the Mind presents Boston Ghost Tour, based on real events. This is based on a real Boston ghost tour that I've attended this year, 2012 Halloween season. There are supplements of interviews with other people from Boston. No names will be mentioned. To find more information on Lightning Bolt Theater of the Mind, go to www.lightningbolt.podbean.com. Please send comments to tanya631 at gmail.com. That's T-A-N-J-A-631 at gmail.com. Very strange. Very bizarre, very creepy, but all very, very true stories. This tour tonight, a little bit of a different type of a haunted tour that you might have gone on in Savannah, West, New Orleans. First, I am not dressed up in a colonial costume. And I'm not talking in a creepy voice. And over there I was born. No, 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 no. Boston was founded by Puritans, not pirates. So there'll be no bad Captain Jack impersonation giving coming out of my voice this evening. The stories I'm meant to tell you tonight are meant to creep you out, to give you the willies. We have, uh, on this tour, I have experience, and I'm going to be showing you some photographic evidence things that I've seen that people have taken on my tour that have literally gotten me to almost run out of the Omni Parker house, run out of the Boston Common, smells, things, you know, you name it, it has happened, okay? We have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so we're going to have a lot of fun, we're going to get a little scared, all right? So, you know, I know, you know, control yourself, all right? It's an old, so, um, an old hospital, but part of it's a detox now, and part of it's a hospital. And uh, I'll tell you what: the whole time I was there, like crazy shit was happening. I was in my bu- I was in the bucket truck, and just my boss is like, you know what? Just he's like, when I was when I came over here to bid the job, um, he's like, some weird shit was happening. He's like, my lights started flickering in my truck, like just weird shitty like I was walking through and somebody it felt like somebody knocked my books out of my hand it's in um uh, I think Medford or Wakefield we were doing I was doing tree work there and I mean it was crazy like I tied I tied a knot to lower a piece of wood over a building and I tied the knot a hundred times a day and my knot came untied and just I was in the bucket truck and the, bucket just went right to the right. It's crazy, like it's really crazy, yeah. 
I, I get down and I'm like, dude, I can't work. I can't do no more. I'm like, why? I'm like, dude, something's going to go wrong. I'm like, this shit's crazy, man. I told him. He's like, you tied your knot right. I watched you. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I asked you. Like, I, I had to retie it. And I said, I, I took to my boss. I'm like, dude, am I doing this right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I told you there's some fucked up shit here. When we, after, right before, when we got there, we drank the coffee. And the, the property guy, he does the plant maintenance and stuff at the hospital. He's like, oh, we'll, I'll take you for a walk. He took us to a walk into this hallway. And I, ended, I, I had to get out because it was like you could hear things like slamming, doors shutting. And I'm like, dude, is there anybody in here? And he's like, no, I don't get freaked out very easily. Like, I've, I've been on the Ouija board. I've been through, I had, I had seances, stuff like that. Like, I'm big into this stuff. That is the entrance to the Boylston Street T-Stop. America's oldest subway system. Commissioned, uh, pardon me, opened up for business September 1st, 1897 oldest subway system in the United States. You can hear it right now. Oldest one in the world? London. Everyone says London. That's what I thought too. Budapest. Ha! Ah, there you go. How's that for your trivia night? So, when they were excavating the tunnels right below the very ground we're standing on, they were digging right through here. And when they were digging these tunnels in the 18, you know, 1890s, they came across this mass grave skeleton remains of hundreds of men, all men. Who were these guys? And also, many of these men had horrific uh, wounds, arms and legs missing. Who were these people? Well, I'm going to tell you. we got to go to the history books. 1774 to 1776, Boston was under military occupation by the British Army. And they camped their troops right here in Boston Common. And in June 1775, there was a huge battle over in Charlestown called the Battle of Bunker Hill. If you're visiting Boston, it's that, the Battle of Bunker Hill is where that thing that looks like the Washington Monument, well, guess what? It's older than the Washington Monument, but it's smaller. But that's where the Battle of Bunker Hill happened. It was a loss for the colonists, but it was kind of a moral victory for them because these ragamatag colonists were able to repel three advances by the British Army supposedly one of the best armies in the world. So Matt, since you were the last to arrive, guess what? You're a British soldier. I'm a militiaman or a minuteman from Reading, Massachusetts. We actually were fought in that battle. And you are going to storm Bunker Hill. So come on, charge, get me, yeah, bang, well, I got you. But I, but, ooh, strong. And, but you're a bad, sh but I'm a bad shot, all right? It's the infamous do not fire until you see the whites of his eyes. Why? Well, the Amer like I said, the Americans weren't a trained army. And also, they didn't have a lot of ammo, so every shot mattered. So, Matt storms up the hill, I see the whites of his eyes, and blammo, I get him. But I don't kill him. I'm a bad shot, remember? And I get him right here in the bicep. So you're writhing and wriggling in pain, like, ah, screaming. And your friends bring you to your army surgeon. And your army surgeon's gonna get that, gonna treat you. Gonna get that wound out for you. So what they're going to do is first give you a piece of cork for you to bite down on so you don't bite your tongue off. Then your friends are going to hold you down. And then the army surgeon is going to take a saw that's been in a bucket of water. And he's going to saw your arm off, no anesthesia, as fast as possible. 
throw your arm into a bucket. Oh, by the way, soap, forget about it. And then he's going to take a piece of iron that has been smoldering all day long in a fire. And then take the piece of iron and right against the wound. There you go. All right, good luck there, nubby. All right. So if you did, and so you had a 50-50 shot of not dying of gangrene, blood poisoning. Unfortunately, many of these men did die of blood poisoning and various other uh, wounds that they received at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And many of these men were interred right here. When they opened up the trolley in 1897, the trolley operators would swear that they would see men in red coats, British regulars, marching through the tunnels, appearing within moments of the train just going about before they would hit them. The stories continue to this day. Apparently, the British regulars like to haunt new trolley operators who are driving the front car of the Green Line. I have interviewed two of them. They will swear that then their superiors will not tell them unless the, you know, they've heard the stories from other sources that as they are turning around the corner to go down to Arlington Street, all of a sudden as they take that corner, um, one or three individuals will just appear right in front of them. Some say people are just hallucinating, making things up, their mind getting the better of them. But to this day, even people who, regular Bostonians, will always curse the Green Line. For sometimes the trains just stop dead in their tracks. Electrical systems will go out right between Boylston Street and Arlington Street. Huh. Something, yeah. That's good to know. That's right, right. right exactly. That, that's right, actually true. Right, yeah. exactly. See? Haha. <laughs> Some people think that this trolley system's just old, the cars need to be replaced. Others will say that perhaps it's those British soldiers just giving one final laugh at the Americans who inflicted such horrible wounds to them back June 15, 1775. The haunted subway. America's oldest and supposedly most haunted subway system. stoop right there they you will hear them they go scurrying by right there if anyone has a big problem with them stay right there if anyone who doesn't just mean just leave Templeton and his friends alone but one year there's a woman she didn't want to listen to what I was telling her I was giving her my advice but she's like oh no I want to sit and one of them went running she said up her shirt and went behind her but blood curdling did not even begin to describe sound of how loud she screamed. Okay. All right. Let's begin. 
And I'm just getting a quick uh, photo for you guys in a second. All right, this next story naturally is we're gonna do the haunted burial ground, not graveyard. What's the difference between a burial ground and a graveyard, you might ask? What? Well, thank you. Ding, 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 ding. Perfect. Thank you for the cue. Difference between a burial ground and a graveyard. Uh, you might see them in your hometowns. Uh, do you see uh, or a cemetery? Do you see any crucifixes behind me? No. This is not consecrated ground. Hence the term burial ground versus cemetery. All right. Very quickly. Now there's several other burial grounds in and around the Boston area. Right here, where there's there's a three in a very close proximity. Up the street is the old Granary Burial Ground, which is a who's who of American Revolutionary War history. Ben Franklin's parents, John Hancock, uh, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere. Uh, they are all buried up the road over there. And of course, we have. Hi, Paul. How are you? Very good. Good, good, good. Yep. Uh, Paul Revere and. John Hancock. In addition, um, this one, this barrel ground is not really the, uh, it doesn't have all that razzmatazz. This one is the poor people's burial ground. Many of the people, many of the markers behind there say unknown. Who are the unknown? Well, my kinfolk. The poor Irish Catholics that were living in squalor over in the North End. It was literally a scene out of Monty Python and the quest for the Holy Grail. <laughs> bring out your dad, bring out your dad. And they did. Diseases ran rampant in that area. Typhus, tuberculosis. Many of these people were deposited here in Papa's graves. If you ever saw the movie Amadeus at the very end, you know how they deposit. Think that. There is an interesting guy that is buried here. His name is Gilbert Stewart. The portrait painter. Has anyone seen any of Gilbert's work? No? You're shaking your head. You're lying. You see it every day. Every day that you look at a $1 bill. <laughs> that portrait, that mug of uh, old George, uh, George W. Washington, the original George W. He's uh, uh, Gilbert painted that. He's buried somewhere back here. Where? We don't know. Why? Well, when Gilbert died, his family had kind of fallen out of, you know, didn't have a lot of money at the time and his sister bought a burial plot and the sister by the by the time that the family had regained their fortune they asked the sister well we can now afford a very nice headstone for Gilbert where'd you put him she unfortunately had a touch of dementia by that time and she was like so Gilbert a very famous portrait painter painted many many of the founding fathers is buried somewhere back there where we don't know but this is a haunted tour, not a trivia tour. So here's our second haunted story of the evening. We don't need to go very, very far back into the history books. We just need to go to the early 1980s. And studying here in Boston was a young man by the name of Matthew Rudger. And Matthew was a dental student. He was studying at the Tufts Dental School. And one night he is bored out of his skull and he decides he's gonna cut class. He's walking down Boylston Street, and he's like, oh, wow, look at this old grave uh, burial ground. I almost made a mistake there. And he's walking around, and you know, goes in, and he's looking around, looking at some of these old headstones. He's like, wow, these are really old. And as he's looking at them, 
crouches down on one, and all of a sudden he feels a tug on his collar. It literally like, almost brings him off of his feet. He stands up, looks around. There's nobody there. Now, if that had happened to me, I'd be a little startled. But Matthew wasn't too frightened. Why? Well, back in the early 1980s, right across the street over there, you see there's a Lowe's Theater. Well, back in the early 1980s, there was some theaters there. And those mm. theaters had red lights, too. But mm. they spelled one letter three times. X, X, X. That area was referred to as the combat zone. I'm going to try to keep this as PG-13 as possible. Uh, a lot of the nightlife happened there. And Matthew was aware of that. So Matthew's just like, ah, somebody's just a little drunk, a little high, a little messed up. And they're going to mess around with a person in a burial ground. So he thinks nothing of it. And he moves on to another headstone. As he moves on to another headstone, all of a sudden he feels another tug on his collar. This one much harder than the last. It literally brings him off of his feet. Stands up, looks around. Nobody there again. But this time Matthew's like, okay, this is too weird. Gotta get out of here. As he's turning to leave to make for the exit where we just met a few moments ago, guess what happens? He hears a child's laugh, a giggle. Then out of the corner of his eye, he sees a young girl. She's about 12, 13 years old, wearing a white dress. Her face is ashen color, very unhealthy uh, color. She's kind of giggling and pointing at him. Matthew, now completely freaked out. What the heck is this? What is going on? What's the kid doing here in a cemetery in the middle of the night? So he decides he's going to leave the burial ground quickly. But as he does so, the young girl vanishes and begins to reappear all throughout the burial ground as fast as possible. You know, instantaneously, on top of some of the headstones, on top of some of the trees, everywhere. Matthew now has realized it's time to get out of Dodge, and quickly. He's running to the gate where we just met a few moments ago, but when he's a few paces away from exiting the burial ground, guess what appears right before his very eyes? The young girl. He, keep, he shuts his eyes, takes a deep breath in, and he keeps plowing right through it. There's nothing there. It's a specter. And there's a ghost. Matthew continues running down Boylston Street to his car. When he gets to his car, he's huffing and puffing. He's out of breath. He's fumbling for his keys, and then he feels something cold and icy reach into his pants pocket. Brings out his car keys, dangles it in front of him, and drops it right below his very feet. Matthew drive, takes his car keys and drives like a bat out of hell to the Boston Police Headquarters to tell them in the middle of the night what he just saw. The police, as you can imagine, aren't too thrilled. You're in the combat zone, and you saw what? What drugs were you taking, buddy, was pretty much the thought going through the police. But Matthew assures them that he's of sound mind and body, he's as sober as a lark, and that he is not making this up. But the police, of course, don't really buy this story, and they're about to throw him into the drunk tank that he's really pulling their leg, but Matthew assures them, but Matthew doesn't want to spend the night in jail, so he's like, okay, getting out of here, and as he's leaving, there's somebody who's hearing this whole story, and it's a Boston Globe reporter, and this Boston Globe reporter is like, huh, this guy's coming running into the Boston Police Headquarters in the middle of the night to tell him that he just saw a ghost. Guess what? Most likely, he saw a ghost. So this reporter interviews Matthew, and this reporter few days later, comes over to the Boston uh, Common Burial Ground, 
to investigate what he saw. This is how we get the story. And as he's going through, the reporter goes to the spot where Matthew said he felt the first tug, comes across this marker. This marker was for children. These children who had died here in Boston around the 1850s over in Deer Island, which was a uh, tuberculosis hospital. Many of these children died of their diseases. They were from very poor families. These children's remains were interred over here. Matthew was standing on the very spot where the Deer Island children supposedly were interred. So the story goes, we say, the Deer Island children still run amok here in the Boston Common Burial Ground to this very day. I was always never really bought that story until one night, a couple weeks ago, I was doing a tour for a young man who was stranded here. He was a pilot for Lufthansa struck up a friendship and a week goes by and all of a sudden I get an email from him saying Jeff look what I took on your tour and I'm gonna kind of bring this around to everybody do you see what's in the middle right there <laughs> say it louder it's like a kid's shit thank you I am not making this up. I will show you my Gmail account. You can see all my gift my gift orders for guilt.com. Right there. Yeah. Ha ha! Got you already. You see it? Just the rats are enough to scare me to not go in there. <laughs> yeah. You see right in the middle, right? The kind of the shadowy. Right there. Okay. I haven't gotten this one blown up yet. Somebody drops. And, and there's no way to Photoshop that either. There was no way to Photoshop that. That is, I will show you where it came from originally. I will show you the email. I will write. I am not making any of this up. So he took a picture not seeing anything. He just and took it. He just took it. He was just up. taking a photo of it. I guess kind of the blue. Yep, the kind of the blue yeah. thing. Yeah. I should have got a disposable camera. <laughs> Why? Just to take pictures, like oh. my phone focuses. That's the problem. Uh huh. You can't get a camera that focus, auto focuses. Oh yeah. You need to get one that randomly just snaps. Uh huh. Like that's the whole point of. You're supposed to aim anywhere and take pictures. To supposedly get something. There's another burial ground like that, I believe, in Charlestown where they um, buried the poor Irish who had right. uh, nothing. They came here, they died, and there was no place to bury them. They, uh, they put them in the house down. Is a big bunker, the 
you can hike up to the top of the mountain, which takes about an hour. But there's all sorts of mysteries of um, ghosts, um, devils, um, monsters living in the woods. Um, you know, we used to go up there years ago and, you know, more, you get more paranoid than anything else, but um, there's a lot of history up there. They have hiking trails daily, but when you go up at night with a friend and do your own thing, uh, and it can be pretty spooky. So if you're in Boston, go to Mattapan, which is part of Boston, or go through Dorchester, or go through Milton Quincy and Bull Hills, there's hundreds and hundreds of acres. Uh, there's a pond up there, a swimming pond, which is crowded in the summer. Like I said, it's a ski resort, there's uh, hiking, but at night there's all uh, the ghost stories. And there's a roadway up there that um, says some people have never come out of. So what we're looking at right now, now we're all, who's from the West Coast? Anybody? All right. Now you all know about the floods and the crypts in LA? All right. Right. Well, Boston has its fair share of crypts too. They're right behind us. Family vaults. Wow. Yeah, right there. And yes, everyone just got the joke. And of course, everyone's now looking at the doors. Now, back in the late 18th century, uh, early 19th century, before we had the Mount uh, Auburn Cemetery, the way that you would show your wealth is you would buy one of these crypts or vaults, and you would, and your family would have all your remains put in there. Grandma, Grandpa, Crazy Uncle Ed, Auntie Mildew would all be put in there, all right? Kind of fell out of favor by the 20th century, and by that time, the homeless started to take up shelter in there. Oh. Gets even worse. There was a, like I said, I'm gonna keep this as PG-13 as possible. There was a woman of the night that used to bring in her gentleman customers. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I heard that one a couple weeks ago, and I was like, that is so gross. I'm putting it in the tour. So, <laughs> so finally they had enough of the shenanigans and literally you can see, I'm not making this up guys, you can see, see those latches right there? You'll see there's like a white mark around them. They welded the doors shut. They are now zombie proof as well. All right. Uh, so people always ask Jeff, are there any bodies in there? And I said, well, most likely not. There's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a very moist climate here. So any uh, human remains has probably deteriorated over the time, but there are possibly some human remains, a lot of garbage, but one thing for sure, loads and loads of rats, all right? So now also, right over across the street there is a very famous square. It's named after a very, very famous author. And this author was born in Boston and he was running out of money. So he joined the US Army and while in the U.S. Army over at Fort Independence, right near the John F. Kennedy Library, it's still there today, if you're here for Columbus Day weekend, go and check it out. There's Fort Independence. And this author heard the story about a man who had killed another soldier, very popular soldier, and these, this popular soldier's friends sought revenge on this Captain Drain by walling him in alive into a jail cell. Well, this young man who heard the story, his name was Edgar Allan Poe, and Edgar Allan Poe wrote the story, The Cask of the Amontillado, based on that story that he heard over in Fort Independence. So 
So for those of you who have not read uh, Poe, I see that our student right here has. So yay! Yes, thank you, public education. Or, or you know, very good. That Edgar Allan Poe, father of America, horror genre. Uh, wrote the story, the Casca de Amontillado, the story of a man, an Italian aristocrat. Help me out, my friend. Your first name is? Jack. 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 The story of two Italian aristocrats that decide to wall somebody in alive in a catacomb. Yeah, I haven't read it in like... Down in a cellar. Down in a cellar. Thank you. So, Edgar Allan Poe wrote that story. And one year, many moons ago, a couple years ago, uh, a gentleman... Was, uh, who started the Friends of the Edgar Allan Poe Society, was getting very concerned that uh, cities uh, like Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston were calling Edgar Allan Poe a native son. Well, that's not true. Edgar Allan Poe was uh, born here in Boston. He hated Boston. So the Friends of the Edgar Allan Poe Society stuck a plaque on that building over there, said this is the birthplace of Edgar Allan Poe. Unfortunately, that is not true. Edgar Allan Poe was born a few blocks over in an area called Back Bay, uh, pardon me, in uh, Bay Village. But the city elders are like, you know what, this guy's right. And also he put the, the plaque up with uh, four-inch bolts, so uh, that plaque's not going anywhere. So they decide to name that shade of trees over there Edgar Allan Poe Square. So I bring you the Casco de Amontillado story from plain view of Edgar Allan Poe Square. I see by the little glazed look over your eyes, you're done with American literature. Let's move through Boston Common and move on to one of the haunted, most haunted spots in, I would probably almost say, New England. When I was nine years old, I lost my biological mom and in my house. And after my mom was gone, like, her rocking chair would rock. I'd find, I mean, still to this day, my mom used to eat popsicles and put them back in the wrapper and put them back in the box. Mm-hmm. Still find it to this day. Like I get tucked in every night. I feel like people people tell me all the time, dude. When you're when, when I'm with you, like I get weird vibes from like somebody watching all the time. Like my boss tells me, he's like, hey, who's watching us today? Like I don't know, man. You know, just weird shit happened in my life with that. What we're all staring at is this, it's a plaque that says, this is the site of the Great Elm. Don't worry, the plaque's wrong. It says, this is where the Sons of Liberty would come and gather. This is not correct. This, the Sons of Liberty, if you ever saw, let's say, the John Adams series on HBO, the, the Sons of Liberty were these rough and tumble longshoremen. And they were all over uh, in near the the eastern part of Boston, over near the ports, over near the, the harbor. This area of Boston, right here, right, pretty much right where that street is, was kind of like the hinterland, you know, the frontier land. Boston is pretty much mostly made land. All those buildings right there, that's all landfill. Mm. That was filled in in the 19th century. Mm. So this was like pretty much all of Boston back during the Revolutionary War was right uh, this area going that way. All that was made later. And stand, and when the Puritans got here in 1630, there was this huge elm tree. And the Puritans put it to good use when they took control of Boston, 1630. They used it as the hanging elm. This is where the condemned were brought to die. The Puritans would dish out punishment Old Testament style. 
they'd hang you at a drop of a hat. Most interesting thing I've ever read about somebody being hanged here for? Stealing squirrels in the common. So if I still see any little furry creatures coming out of anyone's pockets, guess where you come. Now, we've all heard of the Salem Witch Trials, correct? It's Halloween, mm -hmm. it's October, come on. This is prime season for me. Now, so we've all heard about Salem and their most famed, their famous witches, you know. But did you know that Boston had its fair share of witches too? We had them first, and we hung them just as good. Let's begin. 1648, we have Margaret Jones. Margaret Jones was an herbalist. Not that kind of herbalist that we were smelling earlier, all right? <laughs> it's legal in Massachusetts, all right? So, now Margaret was very, very good at curing a very common ailment at the time, in colonial time in 1648, a disease called dysentery. And do you know what dysentery is? No, I'm gonna tell you. It's diarrhea till you die, all right? It's not a fun way to go, all right? It's disgusting. And it was often called cholera. But Margaret was very sharp. She would actually make potions out of chalks and barks that occurred naturally here in Boston. She'd grind it up in the old mortar and pestle, you know, put some water in and you drink it and it would coat the stomach. The next time you are sick to your stomach and your mother or your dad or, is, or, you're, or you're going for that bottle of Kaopectate or, or Modium AD, look on the back of it. Look on an active ingredient. Chalk. Margaret knew what she was doing as opposed to the Puritan elders who would say, if you pray hard enough, your diarrhea will go away. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. History can be fun. All right. So, of course, Margaret was, you know, really defying Puritan authority, you know, uh, so this is kind of was putting her on thin ice. So one day in 1648, she makes a potion for her neighbor. The potion doesn't work, and the neighbor kind of calls her a quack and goes over to her house, and there's just a big argument, and the neighbor, like, you know, you know and Margaret slams the door in the neighbor's face. But later on that night, the neighbor's cow dies. Bum, bum, boom. <laughs> That's it. She's killing livestock. She's in league with the devil. She's brought forth to the Puritan elders. She's caught in a series of lies, and that seals her fate. And she's brought here, 1648, and she's hanged here as Boston's first witch. Second witch, we have Anne Hibbins. Anne Hibbins was described by contemporaries as a woman of natural crabbiness. <laughs> she was another kind of a witch. Began with the letter B. Uh, Anne had a bad demeanor. It was made worse when her husband loses his fortune. So, uh, <clears throat> so Anne becomes kind of the town gossip, the tattletale. Have them at work. We have them at school. Trust me. Unfortunately, when you get older, they're still around. You know, the, I. How come you didn't clean this up? I saw you. Right. It's annoying. Right. And Anne was that person we all detest. And one day what happens in 1656 is that one day, there's two young ladies just griping about Anne. Oh, Anne said this about me. Anne said that about me. But as they're talking, guess who turns around the corner? Anne. The two women naturally shut their traps. And Anne goes right up to them. Says, I know you were talking about me. <laughs> the two women look at each other. How'd she know that? She's psychic. 
She's a witch. <gasps> so then, of course, it doesn't take brain surgery to figure out that when two people are talking, they see you and they immediately shut up. Guess what? They are talking about you. But of course, Anne does not have a friend in town. Not even her children are there to defend her against the charges of witchcraft. That kind of shows you how nice of a lady she was. And so 1656, she's hanged as Boston's second witch. Third and final witch, much more sadder of a tale. 1688, we have a woman who lives here, an old woman. She's from Ireland. She's kind of an indentured servant. Like she, her name is Goody Glover. She's Irish Catholic, my, my kinfolk. And she is um, kind of viewed as like a second-class citizen. There's a lot of discrimination against the Irish, especially the Irish Catholics. So Goody scrapes a living by being a maid, a, uh, a laundress. She cleans up your knickers. You're, you know, you're unmentionables. And one day in 1688, Goody is delivering the laundry to one of her employers, the Goodwins. Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin are not at home, but their charming 14-year-old daughter, Martha, is. Martha takes it upon herself to let Goody in and inspect the laundry. Martha notices that her favorite dress is missing. She accuses Goodwife Glover of stealing it. Well, unfortunately, this is the stick that broke the camel's back. Goody just has had enough of listening to these children's lips. This goes off. Don't, just don't ballistic. Jesus, Mary, Catherine, and Joseph, don't you ever be blaming me for stealing your laundry, you horrible little brat. <laughs> and the like. I had an Irish grandmother. She had a brogue. She was delightful. And, right. Kavanaugh. <laughs> um, right. So, as you can imagine, the ch you know, then she, and then you know, she goes ballistic, and then Goody leaves, and Martha is there, just sobbing and crying, all upset. Mister and Missus Goodwin come home. They see their daughter is hysterical. They ask him, Martha, what is the matter? And through her sobs, Martha's like, Mother, Father, I asked Goody about my dress, and she tells me she screamed at me. And then she began to speak in tongues. <laughs> True, her native tongue, Gaelic. She was Irish. <laughs> And then, supposedly, Martha begins to go into fits. Arms flailing above her head, eyes rolling in the back of her head. And the parents ask, they go, child, who has bewitched you? And Martha supposedly says in a demonic voice, I said I wasn't going to speak in a creepy voice, but I will. She goes, it is good wife Glover. You know, think uh, Linda Blair at her best. All right, yeah, I'm going to kill you. Right, stuff like that. And then all the other children in the family, they begin to yell and scream and hoot and holler, saying that they are being possessed by Goody Glover. So they go and arrest Goody on the charges of witchcraft. Now there's a Harvard-educated man by the name of Cotton Mather who is there to prosecute this case. And he tells the court that he can tell a witch from a non-witch. So what he's going to do is ask Goody to recite the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Well, she can do it backwards and forwards in Gaelic and in Latin. English, not her native tongue. So she starts to recite the Lord's Prayer. She messes up a couple of the verses. She gets very, very flustered, very upset. And she actually says, yes, I'm in league with the Dark One. Not Voldemort, she's not a Death Eater. And that <laughs> sentences her here to the Hanging Out 1688. Now, Cotton Mather writes a book about this whole experience. It's published throughout the Boston area, the Boston area, the colonies. 
And a few years later, in 1692, in a town called Salem, where they're gearing up for things right now, similar instances, young girls, young ladies, teenagers, acting hysterical. They believe witchcraft is at hand. And there is a desperate cry out from the town of Salem that they need witch experts. Cotton Mather answers that call. He goes up to Salem and through his expertise, he helps to condemn 18 innocent women and one man, Giles Corey, is actually crushed, pressed to death. Last words, more weight. Read about that later. Which is later known as the Salem Witch Hysteria. It all started, so all that crazy stuff going on in Salem has its roots right here in Boston. So it all started here, the Hanging Elm, all because of the dirty laundry. Now, like I said, I was telling, uh, I was just telling, excuse me, I was just explaining that this is one of the most haunted spots in Boston. And I'm going to tell you why, in just a second. When the condemned were brought to die here, in order for the condemned family to get the body back, your family had to say that, yes, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter did this crime, then they cut the body down and give it to you, the family, so they could have a proper Christian burial. If you did something really horrific and no one wanted to claim it, your body would be set to left here to rot and decompose. Oh, really? Exactly. Yeah, gross. They'd cut you, imagine a nice hot August day too. Nice. They'd cut you down and throw you into the Charles River, let nature take its course. But here's also what happened quite a lot. Your family, if they knew you were innocent, if they knew that you uh, didn't do the crime or they didn't want to bring shame to your family, your family would wait under the cover of darkness. They'd sneak out here at, uh, before the daylight hours. They'd come and they'd bring a knife, shovel, and a ladder. They'd climb up, they'd cut you down. They'd look around and find a nice, quiet, deserted spot. They'd bury you, be gone before anyone else had seen what has happened. How do we know this? Well, Boston Common's been around since 1634. It is America's oldest park. And there's been a lot of additions and changes and modifications to America's oldest park. Walkways, electricity, running water. Oh yeah, over there there's an underground parking garage. Guess what they find all the time here, my friends? Bodies. Thank you. Oh, hundreds, <laughs> three to four hundred bodies are right below the very ground that we've been walking on together for the past 45 minutes. You will not sunbathe here again after that, all nope. right? Here's where things start to get weird. One, flowers do not grow naturally in Boston Common. They don't know why. The homeless don't sleep here. True story. In the wintertime, people will say that they will come, people will come running out from this area starting to feel as if somebody is choking them. Happened to me on one of my tours. I didn't tell them where we're going. I didn't say anything about witch hangings or anything. I said, we're just going to go to our next stop. And as we're walking, I see a young couple. They kind of divert over there. I'm thinking, all right, they didn't, they didn't listen to me about going to the bathroom, all right? They're going to the bathroom somewhere. And when they rejoined us at the top of the hill, they said, my goodness, my husband had an asthma attack. He said he hasn't had one since he was five years old. I was like, okay, that was weird. Also, very first time I was doing this tour, I was doing this tour for a bunch of eighth graders. No harm, please. Uh, eighth graders for my, uh, I've always said, are just like bees and dogs. They smell fear. So when I was doing this tour, uh, they were on the very first time, the kid was taking uh, photograph of me and as we were walking to the next stop comes and shows me the photograph that they were taking of me 
And it was me surrounded by all these white lights. Orbs. Exactly. The last photo really threw me for a loop. There was a green light coming out of my body. I do not know how that was taken. So that was uh, four years ago. So people always ask, oh, Jeff, you know, that's hogwash. So ever since then, I've been collecting these photos. So in June 2012, I was doing this tour for a group of uh, high school kids from Vermont. And a woman was standing right where you are, sir. And she takes a photograph. And this is what emerges. She screams. And this is what emerges from her viewfinder. What does those light look, light look to be in the shape of? Thank you. Oh, Say I that louder. So. Hanging nooses. Yeah. The Worcester Mental Hospital. You've got to be careful getting in there, but once you're in there, you're pretty well, you know. Um, I mean, you can hear people yelling. You can hear all sorts of shit. My flashlight went out a couple times in that place, and I had brand new batteries. Um, we couldn't even light a lighter in that place. I mean, it took us like half hour to light a lighter in that place. It was creepy. I was freezing cold for a few minutes. You know how like, um, you know how like when you stand there and it feels like something's around you and then you get the cold breeze up your neck like somebody's breathing on the back of your neck? That happened and there was nobody behind me. Like I was... We were standing in a circle. Haunted house, or a haunting that occurred there in November 1999. Right over there is number 33 Beacon Street, and that is also the number of uh, Dr. Uh, pardon me, of George Parkman Jr.'s home. Dr. George Parkman lived in Boston uh, well into the uh, end of the 19th century, and he was a very philanthropic man. His father, Dr. George Parkman was, in fact, a doctor. He was part of the family that founded the Harvard Medical School. Fortunately, Dr. Parkman met an untimely demise in November 1849. But you see, Dr. Parkman was a money lender. He lent out money to the, the elite of Boston. And on the Friday before Thanksgiving in 1849, Dr. Parkman told his wife that he was going to go out and see three accounts accounts for people that owed him money. He referred to a very troublesome Harvard chemistry professor that had been dodging him for quite some time by the name of uh, Dr. Webster. So Parkman goes out that day and is never seen, uh, never seen again. The next day his wife, his wife's uh, father call, uh, puts a summons into the police saying that Dr. Parkman is missing. A well-to-do man in Boston is missing, and everyone in their in their brother has a theory. Police just think, ah, just some guy who didn't like Parkman, always knew he had money on him, just knifed him. But there was one person that had a very good, a very bizarre theory. This was Ephraim Littlefield. He was Dr. Webster's like custodian at the Harvard Medical School. He goes to the police and says, Doc check out Dr. Webster. He's been acting all weird ever since Parkman's gone missing. I'm like, how so? Well, according to Littlefield, who was kind of this tough and earthy, kind of creepy guy, 
He's like, Webster was in his laboratory all weekend long, running his incinerator so long that the walls were hot to the touch. The police are like, Harvard professors don't kill people. So finally, Littlefield's had enough. He knows that Webster has something to do with Parkman's disappearance. So he goes, and on Thanksgiving night, him and his wife go and break into Webster's uh, laboratory and then start digging in the privy. Do you know what a privy is? It's a toilet. And it is right, exactly. Fun. And Littlefield's digging away. And they break through the wall. And the wall, the muck and crud come out and they start digging with their bare hands. And you know what they find? Littlefield finds bones. Leg bone, hip bone, jaw bone, and teeth. Yes. So Littlefield goes to the police. Like, oh yeah, you don't think Harvard professors kill people, do ya? Boom, and he throws the bones on the desk. They go and immediately arrest Webster. Webster, upon his arrest, says one of the stupidest things you can ever say when you're caught, you know, with bones in your little bathroom, which is, well, have you found the whole body? Well, they arrest Webster, and it's the O.J. Simpson case of 1850. Harvard Mm -hmm. professors are killing each other, and it's a who's who of um, Boston's finest, and most uh, big names are brought into the trial. Finally, they uh, they bring in Parkman's dentist, Parkman had a weird shaped jaw, protruding jaw, and it was very difficult to make teeth for him. So they bring in the dentist. The prosecution brings over the teeth that were found in Webster's privy. They give it to Parkman's dentist, and plop, 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 the teeth fit perfectly, and Webster is found guilty and is sentenced to be hanged in 1850. Mrs. Parkman says, okay, guess what? Our family's no longer involved in the money lending business. We're now in the money giving away business, so they're a very philanthropic family in Boston. A lot of things in Boston are named after Parkman. The same guy. So, and in eight, so, you know, the, and what happened was that why Webster killed Parkman, actually, Webster later did confess, was that uh, Webster had taken money out from Parker, Parkman, borrowed money, and he used these uh, precious mineral stones, these gems, as collateral. Parkman found out that uh, Webster had taken another loan out for $600 from another guy, and Parkman felt cheated, so Parkman would always harass Webster. One day, according to Webster, Webster felt threatened by Parkman, clubbed Parkman over the head in self-defense, then he panicked, brought the body into the laboratory, chopped up the body, threw the body parts into the incinerator, turned on, cranked on the incinerator, took out the body parts, took out the bones, smashed the bones up, and flushed them down the privy, thinking no body, no homicide. Well, fortunately he didn't think about Efren Littlefield, that creepy guy. Well, on the 150th anniversary of Littlefield, uh, pardon me, of Parkman's death, there was to be a big celebration in his son's house, which was owned by the Bostonian Society. An hour before the dignitaries, like city councilors, the Boston, uh, you know, the mayor was supposed to arrive, all the toilets in there overflowed causing over $100,000 worth of damage to that building. How were Parkman's remains disposed of? 
through the toilet. They believe that Dr. Parkman made a quick little visit just to remind everybody of his untimely demise 150 years to the day. The visit of Dr. Parkman, 33 Beacon Street. Documented, go on boston.com, look it up. I'm not making this up. about the uh, molasses disaster? No, they didn't actually. That's actually, uh, that's down the street, that's near Boston Garden. Oh. Where that particular event occurred. The giant vat of molasses broke and people were drowned in molasses. Oh yeah, but I don't know if you want to come down into these neighborhoods we're in you know, but um, yeah, it is definitely haunting. You know, out here people die all the time, so when weird things happen, especially after, right after somebody dies, like their favorite drink might just start exploding in the store. Or, you know, just funny things like that. Weird things, though. Very weird things. Okay, so there was this old man in this guy's friend's house, and he keeps seeing this old guy the friend's house really freaks him out because it's old and creepy. So here's a little bit more about that now. No, but kind of like it freaks me out because I every time I go over there, and he's scared too, like we see this guy with the hat and we, he has his cane in his hand and it's like, it's like he has a dog or something and it's like it's weird because it's like he's trying to talk to me. It's like he's trying to tell me something. And then one time, like, the lights went out and he was writing on the wall. And I don't know, like, if he was trying to send me a message or he was trying to tell me something, but it did. It kind of freaked me out. So get that thing going, because guess what? We're at the Omni Parker House, the oldest continuingly operating hotel in the United States of America. Started 1855 by our friend Harvey Parker. Harvey Parker was from Maine. Where's my, where's vacation land? Very good. Harvey Parker came down from Maine as a, as a youth, st uh, was a stable boy, then became a coach driver. And then, uh, so when his uh, employer would always be coming to get, uh, to go to a, uh, to luncheons right here, she would, uh, you know, she would uh, go to this very famous restaurant, very uh, elegant restaurant, while Harvey was going to a tavern right on the spot, eating mutton potatoes, man after my own heart. And so Harvey started to save up his nickels and dimes, and one day he hears that the tavern's for sale. Harvey's like, you know what, I'm gonna buy the tavern. He turns the tavern into a restaurant called the Parker's, and it's good food cheap. You heard this earlier, right? And Harvey is like, you know what, I'm by the 1840s, he goes, you know what, I'm tired of being a cheap food schlepper. He turns it into a gourmet French restaurant. And everyone in, par in Boston, if not the United States, wants to eat at Parker's. 1855, Harvey's like, I'm tired of being a food schlepper. He decides he's going to try his hand in the hotel business. And in 1855, he builds on this site a five-story hotel. A few years later, he adds three more floors for a total of eight stories. It's called Harvey's, you know, Parker's Palace. It's French Second Empire. It's got the works. Mansard roof, turrets, wrought iron. It's the place you stay when you come to Boston. Presidents, actors, 
authors, a very famous author, actually stayed here for an entire month in 1867 and then again in 1868. His name was Charles Dickens. He stayed here when he would come to recite the Christmas Carol. We all know that he was a very good author, but did you know that he was also quite a good actor as well? He could do an entire soliloquy of, this, of the Christmas Carol, playing all the parts, and you know, so, and actually donated the, donated the mirror that's on the second floor here, where he used to practice his, uh, where, where he would practice in front of. 1884, Harvey Parker takes the uh, next journey, takes the dirt nap. And the, the dirt nap. <laughs> and a few years go by, in 1928, this building is owned by the Whipple Corporation. And they decide the building needs renovation, so they bring the original structure down, but they leave one wing open, so it gets the claim to fame as oldest continually operating hotel in the United States. Then they build this structure in 1928 that we're standing in right now. Weird things start to happen. Women who would stay in the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th floors would wake up to a man appearing at the foot of their bed and in a very nice voice asking them, is everything satisfactory with your stay? Yes. <laughs> Are your accommodations suitable? Then the specter would vanish. The woman would scream, blue bloody murder, my God, you know, an intruder. Stories were abound of people seeing a man in a, you know, Victorian clothing cloak walking through the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th floors. May 2011, I went up here for a drink to the Parker Bar, which I invite you all to come and join me for, hint, hint. And I walk up there. As I'm walking up, a woman literally comes up and grabs me and goes, are you one of the haunted people? <laughs> I'm like, yes, my name is Jeff. And I do haunted walking tours. You know, how can I help you? She, her and her husband proceed to tell me of their first, this is Saturday Memorial Day weekend. They proceed to tell me what had occurred to them two nights before on their arrival here. If you stay here, the rooms here are rather small. It's an old building, and back then it cost a lot of money to heat uh, buildings. So they decide the, to get two double beds. So in the middle of the night, the woman was telling me the story. She kind of like, it's half asleep. She's like, oh, this is so nice. My husband's crawling into bed with me. Opens her eyes. Guess who's still sound asleep in the other bed? Her husband. Feet do not touch the floor, according to the husband. And here she, she jumps onto him, <laughs> screaming at the top of his, her lungs, somebody just tried to crawl, crawl into bed with me. The husband was like, you're crazy. Oh, thanks, crazy. You know, no, no one is trying to get into bed here. Your, your mind's playing tricks on you, you, tra you travel a long time, you just half asleep, but it makes you feel better, let you and I sleep in the same bed together if it makes you feel any better. She's like, okay, fine. But then this is when the husband chimed in, and this is when I knew this, these people weren't making anything up. The husband, because I could tell he was scared. He says, yeah, that's when the bed sheets started to get pulled off of the bed. And the woman started say yes, including my nightgown. It felt like I was being pulled off the bed. And they both jumped out onto the bed and screamed at the top of their lungs, stop it! And it stopped. A couple years ago, a woman was having dinner in the dining room. It's also the same dining room that John F. Kennedy proposed to Jackie, Jacqueline Lee Bouvier, who later became Jackie Kennedy. 
and a woman was eating, and she looks at her, she looks up, she spits out her food, she goes, that's it, that's him, that's the man, that's the man who appeared in my foot of the, my bed last night. Who is that man in the portrait? Harvey Parker, Mr. Parker. Why does Mar Mr. Parker like to visit the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th floors? Well, how many, well, exactly, how many floors was hot in his building? Eight. Harvey wants to make sure everything's still up to snuff. Kind of a friendly ghost, actually. One of the bartenders actually showed me a video recording of something that happened here. There was a problematic guest who tried to leave without paying and tried to storm out through the school street exit. And as he was leaving, there was a gust of wind that supposed that I something picked up the doormat, blew it against the door, preventing this man from leaving. The man promptly went back and paid his bill. Harvey was looking out for the hotel. I work right over there. There's a wind tunnel that goes west to east. It does not go north to south. So I don't know what the heck happened that day, but I saw a, that doormat go up and block the entrance. Scout's honor. All right. You saw that? What? There's you a video. There's a video recording. There's a video recording of it. Yeah. From the security camera. So Mr. Parker still plays around here. Now there's also a ghost, unfortunately, that hasn't left here yet. Room 303. Room 303. They actually had to close the original room due to shenanigans. Room 303 was a favorite haunt of a liquor salesman. This liquor salesman checked in. Used to have huge parties, and one day he just drank himself to death. Others say suicide. But after they cleaned out the room, women who would stay there would get, com they'd get complaints. They would, the women who would be getting unchanged, going to the shower, they would hear a laugh coming from within the, the hotel room itself. A laugh like a <laughs> <laughs> Very creepy, very unsettling. People complain, oh my god, they smell of booze, of uh, cigar smoke. So finally they had enough of the complaints and they turned it into a maid's quarters, thinking, fine, it's a healthy old one. That was all fine and dandy until one of the maids comes out with scratches appearing all throughout her body. Finally they closed it down and turned it into an electrical room. It's paneled in with red uh, paneling. And I snuck up there one time and it goes 309, 307, 305. Walled in original 303. New 303 around the corner, 301 over on uh, Tremont Street. But, get to the third floor, Sometimes you get a whiff of brandy or a puff of cigar smoke. He's back. Now, my friends from Maine and my friend over there, you see my lid is a lot more dented than yours. You can tell that I am a Red Sox fan. This season was very difficult. And there's a very famous author that comes down from Maine to uh, Fenway Park when there's a Red Sox-Yankee series who is, and stays in this hotel. Who is this author? Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King heard all these stories about what happened with Omni Parker at the Omni Park House. He started to develop a story. He turned it into a short story. And it was called 1408. 1408, which was later turned into a movie starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. So I now leave you here in the beautiful splendor of one of New England's most haunted and historic hotels, the Omni Parker House. A quick additional note here. 
I didn't have my digital recorder on at this point, but exactly after the tour guide was talking about what happened in the Omni Parker Hotel, and as we were all preparing to leave and he was handing out cards to everyone, my EMF meter went off inexplicably. A few times. Twice, actually. The first time it was a series of five beeps, and the second time a series of six or seven. I didn't exactly count all the way. And that was a little bit strange considering that I was not standing near any electrical appliances or extremely close to a wall. Maybe a wire might have been running above my head, but I wasn't aware of anything that could have easily explained it. Just some food for thought. Additionally, I'd like to report that my batteries kept failing and my digital recorder kept having issues. Therefore, unfortunately, I did not end up recording the segment with the courthouse about the woman and her husband who thought she was cheating on him and there was a murder. One other incident that was very unusual, one of the teenagers in our group, about high school age, had his phone out and was taking pictures near the hanging tree. For some reason, he got an anomaly, an inexplicable purple light on his phone. We looked around and tried to explain it by maybe a strange haze from a street light or a farther off building, but there was nothing around the area where he took the photo to have evidence pointing towards the fact that it might have been caused by a natural event. Of course, we didn't delve into it too much, but this purple haze may suggest some sort of orb or an unexplained presence. I definitely felt as if I was being watched when I stood on the spot where the hanging tree had stood years and years ago. Definitely an unsettling place. For further information about hauntings in Boston and more grisly history that you may not be otherwise aware of, please check out Amazon.com. Look up Ghost of Boston Haunts of the Hub by Sam Baltrusis. That's Sam, B as in boy, A-L-T-R-U-S-I-S. In addition, you can find more information about the Boston Ghost Tour, which runs all year, online at www.boston.com hauntedboston.com. To find the Lightning Bolt Theater of the Mind website, go to www.lightningbolt.podbean.com. Lightning Bolt is L-I-G-H-T-N-I-N-G-B-O-L-T. Please leave comments on the Lightning Bolt Theater of the Mind website or send email to tanja631 at gmail.com tanya631 at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and we look forward to hearing from you and your comments about this experimental new form of radio drama. This radio drama falls under the non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, United States Creative Commons license. No copyright infringement is or ever will be intended. Please feel free to distribute this podcast to all of your friends free of charge. There are many things that we can all do that may help stop the spread of the coronavirus. But one thing we can all do is to have a plan in case you do get sick. First, consult with your health care provider for more information about monitoring your health for symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. Second, stay in touch with others by phone or email. 
You may need to ask for help from friends, family, neighbors, community health workers, or more if you become sick. And finally, determine who can care for you if your caregiver gets sick. For more information, go to cdc.gov and be well, everyone.